Welcome to Name Drop San Diego. Name Drop is a podcast from the Union Tribune that's all about the fascinating people in, around, and from San Diego. My guest this week is Britt Bennett. Britt is a New York Times bestselling author of The Mothers and the Vanishing Half, which will soon be turned into an HBO series. She's from Oceanside, where The Mothers is set. And in this interview, we talk about race, about growing up in San Diego County, and what she's into right now that has nothing to do with literature. Our conversation took place during the San Diego Festival of Books, which featured a lot of amazing interviews. You can learn more at sandiegouniontribune.com slash 2021 Festival of Books. Here's our interview. Britt, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I was hoping we could just start with a short excerpt from your book, The Vanishing Half. Sure. Um, I'll just read a little bit from uh, the opening of the book. The morning one of the lost twins returned to Mallard, Louvabon ran to the diner to break the news. And even now, many years later, everyone remembers the shock of sweaty Lou pushing through the glass doors, chest heaving, neckline darkened with his own effort. The barely awake customers clamored out around him, 10 or so, although more would lie and say that they'd been there too. If only to pretend that this once they'd witnessed something truly exciting. In that little farm town, nothing surprising ever happened, not since the Vignes twins had disappeared. But that morning in April, 1968, on his way to work, Lou spotted Desiree Vignes walking along Partridge Road, carrying a small leather suitcase. She looked exactly the same as when she'd left at 16, still light, her skin the color of sand, barely wet, her hipless body reminding him of a branch caught in a strong breeze. She was hurrying, her head bent, and Lou paused here, a bit of a showman. She was holding the hand of a girl, seven or eight, and black as tar. Blue-black, he said, like she'd flown direct from Africa. I'll probably stop there. Um, when I first started reading your book, you know, it is set in the past, and it's also set in this town um, where color is sort of prized um, among the people who live there. That made me think that it was, it was setting myself up to read something that was almost like fantasy or not set in actual reality. But I have read that it was based on something that you learned about in reality. Can you tell me more about the, the genesis of the book? Yeah, the book idea came from my mother who was from Louisiana originally. And she was telling me about these types of towns that were very obsessed with skin color. And, you know, I grew up in Oceanside, so that was something that felt very uh, mythological to me, I think. It didn't feel quite real either. But um, when I went to sit down to actually write the book, I did some research. I, you know, stumbled upon historical records of some of these types of communities uh, that existed. And I decided to kind of lean into that feeling of unreality as I was writing the book. Yeah, so surprising to hear about. Well, your book touched on, you know, so many identity topics, you know, racism, colorism, being transgender. And, you know, when it came out, of course, last year, everyone's like, it's so of the times. And I, I've heard you say in many interviews, actually, you had been writing it for years before, you know, it, it, you weren't really trying to write toward the moment. Uh, or, or were you? <laughs> I mean, you know, what, <laughs> what does it say that, you know, you had been writing it for so long, and it still uh, resonates? Yeah, I mean, I think you can never really know the context that your book is going to emerge into. Um, you know, I never, of course, imagined that my book was going to be published during a global pandemic, for example. So you really have no way of knowing or, or even having any sense of, of perspective about that type of thing. So I don't think in that way I was consciously writing towards 
all of the twists and turns that 2020 would take. But I think, you know, some of the themes that I was interested in are evergreen topics. Like I can't imagine a year where these were not conversations that we were having, whether those were, uh, those were conversations that made the news or that people were like posting on Instagram, that's a different thing. But people have always been interested, I think, in these questions of identity, like writers of all stripes have always been asking those questions. And in particular, Black writers, I think, have been interested in these questions of, of race and identity and, and choice and all of those types of themes. So I think they are evergreen topics, but I think also, of course, the context in which a book emerges, uh, sometimes the book just hits different depending on what the conversations are happening around it. Yeah, again, grappling with all of those topics, did you personally learn or discover anything you know, about yourself in, in the writing of it? Um, I think what I kept sort of coming up against, I think one was just the absurdity of race, um, you know, running up against these moments of of deep absurdity as I was researching the book and writing it that were continually, I think, surprising in different ways. Um, so I think that was one thing. And then the other thing is just the idea that these convert, these these topics are so complex and they're often more complicated than the language that we use and the conversations that we have around race or gender or whatever other type of identity category. So for me as a writer, as a person who works in language, then you know the question is, well, how do I find a better language that is a more complicated language and that actually speaks to the complexity of identity instead of trying to flatten or simplify it? Yeah, something that really reminded me in the reading of it was, um, you know, is it between the world and me, you know, people who believe themselves to be white. Like when I first read that, that was such a, a powerful way to describe race, right? Because really when it comes down to it, um, it is just um, a belief. I mean, so, so you know, what are, what are some of the takeaways, uh, you know, in, in your opinion from, from the book about the way that we as a society deal with race? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, like I said, there's a way that I kept running against the absurdity of it. Um, the idea that race is a fiction, but racism is a reality, and we have to kind of sit in that tension. Um, you know, and the book is about a, a woman who passes, and she passes for white because she goes to get a job, and somebody assumes that she's white, and she just kind of goes with it. So part of what was so, again, absurd to me was, you know, the idea that race is something that can determine so many material realities of our lives. But at the same time, it's so flimsy that this woman became white just because somebody thought she was and she decided to go along with their thought. Um, so to me, I think that those were the biggest things was, was how do I sit in that tension of, of the fact that there is something so flimsy and or not even flimsy, maybe just fluid and unstable about race. But at the same time, the implications of race uh, can be life or death. And what does it mean that both of those things are true? Uh, what has success been like for you? I know this isn't your first book. Your other one was also critically acclaimed, you know, but I mean, this came out, it skyrocketed to the top of lists. You have an HBO show coming out. You know, you're a household name. You've been on TVs around the country. Um, I mean, was, that, was that the goal or is this, you know, for you as well? I mean, I don't know about all of that, but um, no, I mean, I don't think it's the goal. I think that when you are a writer, you just hope that somebody who doesn't know you buys the book, you know, you know that your mom is going to read it or your friends are going to read it. But, um, you know, you're not expecting any of, and at least I was not expecting any of the, um, just the fervor and the enthusiasm for this book. It blew me away in every way. So I think, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, this past uh, the experience of publishing this book has been completely life-changing. 
And then in other ways, you know, all of this happened while I was in quarantine. So really nothing in my day-to-day life actually like meaningfully changed in that sense. I was still inside as all of these things were happening, um, as exciting as they were, and I'm grateful for them. But also there was kind of that, I think, absurdity too of feeling you know, more exposed than I had ever felt in my life, but also feeling more isolated and more, yeah, just more, you know, as as we all have been, just that weird feeling of the book is outside going around the world and I am still in my apartment. That was, I think, the, the strangest kind of tension for me. Yeah, that's so interesting. So have you been able to even do a public reading or tour at all? Or really, you've just been at home since, since it uh, came out? <laughs> yeah, no tour. I did my first public reading the other day. Um, so that was cool. But yeah, very surreal to, to think, you know, the book's been out for over a year. And um, that was the first time I'd signed a book for somebody in public. So, um, so yeah, very strange experience. But that being said, I felt so grateful that the book was received so warmly because I know there were so many great books that came out during quarantine, but because people were not able to tour, were not able to go around talking about them, they didn't get the attention that they deserved. Um, I want to ask you more about that, but I read on your Twitter, you're like, oh, I saw somebody reading my book in public for the second time. And you described <laughs> it as kind of humiliating, you know, like seeing somebody just sort of in your thoughts in public, yeah. I don't know if they recognized you, but obviously you saw your book. I mean, will you talk more about that? What, what does that feel like? I mean, well, the good thing is that, well, not that I think that these people would recognize me, but I was wearing a mask. So that made me feel a little bit less embarrassed. But um, yeah, I mean, it was that's never happened to me. My first book came out in 2016. I had never seen someone just out in public with the book. Um, and this happened to me twice in Brooklyn where I was just walking down the street. And the first time I was with a friend who was like, let's go say hi. I was trying to very much embarrass me. Um, but, you know, it's, yeah, it's a strange feeling. Of course, it's, it's, very surreal to again see your book out in the world in a very tangible way where you're not at a bookstore you're not at a book event you're just like walking down the street so there's a way that 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 is something that's really surreal um and I think yeah the more existential thing is that you know I'm passing somebody on the street who doesn't know who I am who does not know that they're reading my book but they in a way have access to me that's uh you know and that's what happens every time you write a book but I had never I think experience that in life outside of, oh, this person came to my reading or this person, you know, came to a book festival or something. So just to pass some, you know, a girl on the street where I live who's holding the book against her chest. I mean, that's both like a, a really, you know, deep honor, but also there is something that just made me want to like scream and run away. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's a strange feeling. Yeah. So I, you didn't walk up and sign it. I take it. I absolutely did not. <laughs> I didn't. No. Um, well, you mentioned some books that came out in quarantine and because we were in quarantine, you know, didn't get the publicity or notice they may have deserved. I mean, was there anything, uh, you know, that came out during that time or anything that you read during that time that, you know, was really impactful to you? Yeah, there were a lot of things that I read that I really liked. I mean, one book was uh, the book Actress by Anne Enright, um, which I thought was really great. I think it came out some point in the spring or maybe slightly before. Uh, and that was a book that I really loved. Um, that I loved reading. Um, and as far as other things, there are a lot of things that I'm reading now that have not yet come out. So I'm hoping that for these authors that we will hopefully be able to do in-person events then so they can get the experience of having the tour and all of that. Um, but there was another book, Open Water by Caleb Nelson that I also really enjoyed that came out kind of this year. So there are a bunch of different books I read throughout the space, but I think I particularly feel for debut writers who 
you know, that's such a, it was such an uh, exciting moment for me when my first book came out to get to see my friends and family at these events and to have that moment of public celebration after so many years of private work. So I feel for the writers who haven't had that experience, at least in the real world. And I hope that they will as we hopefully get more vaccinated and people can go to live events. Absolutely. Um, I know it was big news that uh, The Vanishing Half is being made into an HBO series. There is this big bidding war. They won. You're, you're going to be involved. Can you just give us an update? You know, where is that? Where is that process stand? Um, and yeah, how, how will you be involved? Uh, I will be involved as an executive producer. So I'm not writing it, but I'm involved on the producing side of weighing in and giving feedback. Um, and we're still early on. We're still working on the, the draft. Um, so we're still early on in the writing process, but it's been really exciting so far. We have a great team put together. And um, yeah, it's fun to imagine how this book is going to be transformed into a whole different medium. Yeah, how is uh, you know TV writing or writing for the screen you know different than uh, what you've been doing writing novels? I think it's a really different animal, to be honest. And I think to me the the biggest thing that's the most shocking thing so far on the TV side is just how collaborative it is. You know, you write a novel by yourself in a room, and with the TV show, it's, you know, there's so many more people. Whether it's the writers' room, whether it's all the producers, whether it's all the people at the studio, everybody is giving feedback. It's just a very different way of storytelling but i think that's part of what is exciting to me is kind of see the machinery work in that way that's very different than how i'm used to working which is a way that's very solitary do you have a cast in place yet or any other news you want to break at the festival of books <laughs> <laughs> no no we're not that far in the process yet no 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 talk about no talk about casting i think they're just trying to get the screenplay written okay um, I have some questions about your process. So you are uh, born and raised in Oceanside and, you know, at least part of the book happens um, in the South, in Louisiana, also spanning time, you know, time from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s. I mean, how do you prepare for that as a writer? How, what kind of research goes into it? I think it was a blend for me. I mean, part of it, because my mother's family is from Louisiana, there was part of the book that I drew from her stories about growing up there. Um, and then there are other parts that I drew from the reading that I did. I knew that I was you know, writing this book that was taking place in places where I had not lived or had not grown up and, and at time periods in which I was not alive. So I knew that I was writing into the void in a lot of different ways. Um, so a lot of it was either drawing on conversations with family members or and or, you know, research, reading books about the history of race in Louisiana, um, reading books about the sort of specific times and places that I was working about or reading writers who were writing in those times and places um, in order to try to make the book feel grounded in, in that type of reality. Wow. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a lot of work. What were some of the authors you read to sort of prepare um, you know, for this undertaking? Yeah, there were different books. I, I remember I read this book called um, A Chosen Exile by Alison Hobbs, which is about the history of racial passing. So that was one of the first books that I read to kind of think about racial passing, you know, why did people do this? What was what was that experience like for them? Um, so that was a book that that was really helpful for me in that way. And then there were also other novels that I was reading about passing, of course, Passing by Nella Larson. Uh, there's a great book called Caucasia by Danzy Senna, which is about passing and sisterhood. So that book was was a really interesting book to think about to kind of connect me to some of the themes in this novel. So it was different. It was a blend of fiction and nonfiction um, in order to, you know, speak to some of the different subjects and themes in the book. But I think they were all helpful in, in various ways. 
Um, so the vanishing half jumps around. It's sort of nonlinear. The first section is 1968, then I believe it's 1978, then it goes back to 1968, then to the 80s. Um, do you write those chronologically or do you write them the way that we end up reading them? Um, that's a question. I uh, I think more or less the order that it's in the book. I don't think I wrote it chronologically, but I also didn't expect it to do all the jumping when I first started. I thought it would start in 1968 and just go. Um, but I realized that I wanted to tell the story in a way that was kind of disjointed. Um, and I realized that it was fun to kind of reorient the reader in a different decade or different place. And the reader would have to be like, okay, now we're in New York in the early 80s. Okay, now we're in LA in the 70s. You know, like I, I had fun doing that. So I think it was mostly, I mostly wrote it in the order that you all saw it, but there were definitely pieces that moved around as I was working on it. It took a while for me to figure out how to tell the story in a way that felt right to me, but also would make sense to the reader. Mm -hmm. um, what is the process like for you for writing a book? You know, it's like um, as a journalist, I'll write an article that's like a few hundred words and I want to nitpick it to death and never let go. So like, I can't even imagine, you know, taking this text that's several thousand words and like, how do you finally just let it go? Or what is the process? I mean, I definitely feel that way too. Um, I think a, a, a lot of the process, I mean, it's not like a, um, it's not an exciting response, but I think a lot of the process is the people that I have around me who sometimes have to like yank it from me. Um, so <laughs> I think you need people around you to tell you when it's ready or when it's done. Um, and I think there's also for me, you know, I, I, I remember having a writing professor who said, you know, no novel is perfect. Like you cannot achieve perfection in the novel. It's just impossible to do. And I'm sure there are lots of people, and I also have some objections of things that I believe to be perfect novels, but that to me was a helpful thing to keep in mind as I'm working, which is just like, it's never going to be perfect. You're never going to think it's perfect. Even you know if other people think it's perfect, you probably won't. So for me, I think the, the moment where I know I'm ready to move on is when I feel like I've reached the end of myself, where it's like, this is the, this is the most I can do with this. Um, because you can only write the best book that you can write at that time. Um, so that, that I think a lot of that, at least that's how I try to navigate that. But yes, if it were up to me, I would still be editing the band. <laughs> so I think a lot of it is having people around you who tell you like, it's, it's time to let it go. Do you reread your writing once it's published, you know, looking for ways to improve it or just, you know, to appreciate it? Or do you sort of let it go and double back? <laughs> No, I mean, when, when I have to do readings, you know, that's when you have to kind of revisit it in that way. Um, but even then, like when I would do readings in public, I had a, I usually like for the mothers, at least I had a copy of the book and in the copy of the book that I had, I was like editing sentences before I went to read them <laughs> out loud. So, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't reread for pleasure, but when I have to read things, then you kind of revisit it. But sometimes I will like, if I encounter something, especially for the mothers, because that book came out so long ago, sometimes I'll encounter people will post like a quote from the book or something. And it feels really, um, it feels really destabilizing. It feels like somebody else wrote the book, you know, it doesn't feel like, like you want over, I imagine I'll feel that way about this book too. And sometime, like after a while, you're so far away from the person who was working on it every single day that it feels like a stranger wrote it. So you said you do believe there are perfect novels. <laughs> what, what are they? I mean, I, I think there aren't many, but I think, you know, the first thing that came to mind was like, Beloved is a perfect novel. Like, you know, there's certain like books where I'm just like, yes, this book is flawless. But I think 
you know, it's, and also I don't know that perfection should even be the goal of any artist. Like, I don't know, even know that perfect art is necessarily the most interesting because I think that's what the teacher was also saying that a lot of times the thing that is flawed about the book is what actually makes it more interesting than it, like this perfect, perfect object. Um, but I think if I had to like cast a vote, I would say that Beloved is a perfect novel, but, um, but at the same time, I think perfection is overrated. It, it's a very good book. Um, <laughs> So well, I wanted to ask you about the relationship between Stella um, and Kennedy in the book. Stella is the white passing sister that goes to live in Los Angeles and raises as a daughter, uh, you know, who believes herself to be white. That really kind of reminded me of um, like an immigrant and their child relationship. You know, it's like, I did this for you so you could have a better life and you're just, you know, a, a spoiled American and you don't appreciate it. But it was interesting because Stella couldn't or wouldn't, you know, say that to her her daughter. I mean, is that, how did you write that? And also, is that something you feel like you have um, experience with? Yeah, I mean, I, I have my, my best friend's um, parents are from Kenya, and he read it in the same way, um, and read Stella's journey as like this assimilation journey. And I think that that's not something, uh, my parents are not immigrants. So that wasn't something that I was uh, I think immediately thinking about in the moment, but I do like that reading. And I think it's an interesting reading for the character. Um, you know, I think as far as writing that dynamic, I wanted to think about just the complexity of this relationship, because as you said, because of all the things that have to go unsaid between these two people, um, it's a very different relationship. I think if Kennedy knows her mother's life story just from the, the beginning, um, but she, you know, I started to think about what it would be like to be Kennedy, where you don't understand why your mother is so frustrated with you and you don't understand why she, you know, seems to resent you. You don't understand these, these dynamics of the relationship. And, you know, for Stella, like I understood why Stella was frustrated with her daughter, but also, yeah, it felt very unfair for me as, as I was writing it. Um, it felt unfair for her to blame her daughter in a sense for the choices that she made. So it was a very complicated mother-daughter relationship, but I liked that that reading of it, um, this reading of Stella's journey as being this very extreme, you know, sort of assimilation narrative um, because she really is like, um, you know, she in, ends up um, in a sense in this whole other sort of white country, <laughs> you know, she ends up in this different world. She has to learn to speak the language. She has to learn the culture. She has to learn the traditions. Like she has to do those types of things. Um, and there are ways in the book where you, moments where you see that she has, she has like correctly uh, assimilated and other moments where she has not. And you see what the penalties for that are. Yeah, another kind of universal theme I noticed is like Jude, you know, uh, Desiree's daughter ends up better off in many ways, right? Even though Stella and other people around them believe, oh, you, your life might be better if you're more um, light skinned. She's very dark skinned and very successful. You know, she has a happy love life. She has a you know career that's sort of blossoming. Um, was there a message there or what were you thinking of when you wrote it? I mean, I think for that, you know, I thought about, I, di I didn't want to apply some type of value judgment, particularly for the cousins. Like, I didn't want to say, you know, Kennedy is going to end up, you know, punished in some way. Her life is really bad or sad and Jude's life is good. And, you know, I didn't want to have that type of value judgment. But I, I yeah, I liked the idea of seeing Jude go out into the world and leave behind this, this, uh, this sort of social social construct that she's been born into. She's been born, or 
not born into it, but she grows up in this town that has tried to teach her to hate herself. And once she is able to leave that place, um, what she's able to do, who she's able to be. So a lot of that I think was really interesting to me. And then I think Kennedy on the other hand is someone who's also kind of in this constant questioning of who she is. Um, and you see that with her, but I didn't want to apply a value judgment of either of them, of one of them has like a great life and one has a terrible life. I just wanted to think of who these women are, with how they think of themselves and how their upbringing and their relationship with their family has shaped that. What have you heard from um, readers? I mean, I think, you know, this is a fictional book, but it is very relatable to, you know, a lot of a lot of people. I mean, have people related to it? I think so. I mean, I've heard from a lot of people who have told me about their very complicated family stories, you know, lots of stories about relatives who have passed. Um, I've heard from some people who've had just estranged relationships with family members, and this book made them think about that. Um, I heard a lot of readers about their experiences with color. Um, so I've heard a, a lot from readers in these different ways who have related to one or more aspects of the book. So it's been um, it's been really surprising, I think, to see how deeply people have connected to this story emotionally. Um, what is something just non-book related at all that you're really into right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I definitely got very deeply into podcasts um, during the quarantine. And I think in part, it just became really comforting to hear people's voices, like to hear people talking to you. Um, so those are things I'm into. I have my whole like lineup um, every week of what I listen to. Um, so yeah, I mean, I love uh, You're Wrong About, which is kind of like a sort of debunking podcast uh, where they talk about culture and history. Um, there's a podcast called Spencer's that I really love, which is two uh, female journalists talking about basketball. Um, so that podcast is great. Um, there's one called Maintenance Phase that's about uh, sort of health and diet culture and wellness. Um, so I'm really into, I, I got more into podcasts before I think I listened to maybe like one or two. And now I truly have like my lineup and I wait for them to update every week. So when I'm on the train or when I'm walking around, I have something to listen to. Awesome. That makes me happy to hear. I'm going to check out your recommendations. Um, I guess just a couple final questions. Uh, we're running low on time here, but um, you sort of had not a nonlinear path, but you didn't always think you would be a writer. You went to Stanford thinking that you might be a lawyer. You know, you ended up, it was just something you loved. It was obvious it would happen. But I mean, what is your, you know, advice for other aspiring writers out there? Yeah, I mean, I think the best advice that I have heard and, and have tried to follow. I think one is just reading widely, um, you know, reading whatever is interesting or exciting to you. There were so many books that I read in writing The Vanishing Half that did not seem like they would have anything to do with this book, but inspired it in one way or another or led me to, to think of something or imagine something differently. So I think that's one thing is just reading widely and learning from, and, you know, learning from whatever you're reading. Um, and I think the other thing is just being patient with yourself because the work is bad for so much longer than it's ever good. <laughs> and so much of writing a novel, I think in particular, is having to sit with that, to sit with the fact that you will feel bad about your work for years as you're working on it. Um, and then hopefully you get to that point where the, you feel good about it. Um, but sometimes that doesn't even happen. Sometimes you still are like, have the finished copy of your book and you're editing it, you know? So I think learning to be patient with yourself and understanding that sometimes that's part of the process, but you can't beat yourself up. You have to 
just kind of put your head down and keep working. Um, I think that's, that's those, those are pieces of advice that I try to keep in mind as I work. Yeah, such an important reminder. Um, so what are you working on now? And when do we get our next Britt Bennett book? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that last part. Um, but yeah, I'm working on my third novel now. So um, I'm still pretty early on, but it's been exciting to jump into a different fictional world. Thank you again for listening to Name Drop San Diego. And thank you, Britt Bennett, for joining us at the San Diego Union Tribune Festival of Books. Again, go online to San Diego Union Tribune.com slash 2021 Festival of Books for more amazing author interviews. We'll be back next week.